Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 159. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Happy New Year to you, and welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 159 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Matt Allison. Matt owns Atlas, which is a recording studio located in the uh, Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago. Matt has worked with the Alkaline Trio, Lawrence Arms, and Smoking Popes, and a zillion other bands. I'm not going to even begin to list them all because there's so many. But uh, he's been at it since the 90s, and... He is our guest today, and uh, we talked to him from his home in Chicago, where at the time of the recording, it was, I think it was 12 in the afternoon, and it was one degrees outside, I think, with a wind chill factor of, I don't know, minus 8, minus 18, I forget, but it was, yeah, let's just say it was cold. And uh, I can vouch for that Midwestern cold because I just got back from Michigan where it just was, you know, one and two degrees at night, 14 degrees in the day. Yeah, that's just too damn cold. And uh, my arch enemy was in Michigan when I was there. That would be snow. Yeah, snow. Not a big fan of snow. I do enjoy sledding uh, with the kids and I do enjoy a little bit of uh skiing. I'm, I'm a total half-ass skier and uh, not very good, that's for sure. And uh, it's not something I do all the time. Don't own skis. I always have to rent stuff and remember how it is done. But it's like a bicycle, but just with snow. Yeah. Anyways, welcome back. It is the new year, 2018, and it is New Year's Day if you are listening to this as a fresh episode. What a hell of a past year, huh? Yeah. Crazy times. And, uh, so let's let's look forward. Let's look at this year. Uh, I think, in particular, in the world of music and recording, uh, I would like to think that for all of you who listen, uh, that this is going to be a good year for you. I'm I'm hoping so, and I'm hoping it's a good year for myself. So with the new year, of course, we all like to have uh, New Year's resolutions, declarations, uh, goal making, any of that, and uh, definitely encourage you to do that uh, if you are the type of person that. Uh, is a, a good starter, but a bad finisher. Uh, I'm going to just be the voice of strength to you and just say, complete it. Do whatever it is, do it. And if you're bogged down by too many goals, stick to a couple and get those get those those two or three goals done or one goal, whatever it is. Uh, for me personally, this is the year I think I officially get out of debt, which is going to be amazing. Uh, something I've been working on for a long time and definitely something that is a, um, a holdover from debt that was built up uh, when I had my studio in San Francisco. And I just cannot wait. I think it's going to be glorious. So I'll have a extra cup of coffee that day. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And just to give you a little extra nudge, a little, you know, kick in the ass here, a little fire under your pants to say, in this year, here's something to consider. And I'm not, you know, trying to preach to you here, but consider this. It's just a suggestion. We all sit on our ass a bunch, and you know how much I talk about uh, doing stuff like walking and exercising. Uh, do it this year. If you're, maybe you're overweight, uh, maybe you eat poorly, uh, you know, getting getting some sleep eating better and doing some simple exercise consistently, walking 
for example. You don't have to go and roll in a gym and lift massive weights and, you know, become this giant bodybuilder, unless that, of course, is your main main goal in life. Do the basics, you know, eat right, sleep well, and uh, take care of yourself. Because if you do that, it's going to be a lot easier to do audio uh, when you're healthy. And you can take care of your clients, you can focus on the task at hand, and you can enjoy yourself really being an audio professional. So... Also, you know, if you can, if you got some debt, clear it out. If you got gear to sell, get rid of that gear, man. If it's just sitting around, don't don't be the person that says, well, I better hold on to that because you never know. Um, unless it's, you know, something that you think you can truly make money at. I've had a lot of moments over this last year where for myself, I've thought about uh, getting pieces of gear or holding on to pieces that I thought, would bring me uh, business. And when I got down to it, I thought, do I really want to focus my attention and my time on that, on 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 those things that I was thinking of? And the truth of the matter is, is I, I really don't. So whatever that thing is for you that you think, well, I'm considering doing this, but uh, you maybe you like the idea of, of acquiring the gear and using it to do those things but you really aren't going to be good with the follow through on the business aspect of it. Um, maybe you should reconsider. So think about that. I know there's just, there's so much temptation out there of, of stuff to buy old and new. And believe me, uh, when I say this, I am still tempted by it. You know, as much as I talk about being kind of uh, conservative in my um, gear buying, I'm online looking at stuff too. So don't, don't let my, my talk about it make you think that I'm immune to it. I definitely have gear lust and I definitely recognize it and try to address it. I know it sounds like a, like we're at an AA meeting. Hi, my name is Matt. Yes, I am a gear addict. Anyhow, yeah, the new year is here. Let's do some good things. Everybody do some good things. Talking about gear, definitely want to encourage you to head on over to Gear Sluts and check out the Audio Life subform that uh, we sponsor here at Working Class Audio. That is a forum where... A lot of discussion takes place about the things that we talk about here on Working Class Audio. So it's very fitting that we uh, sponsor that. So yeah, that's at gearslits.com. Audio Life is what that's called. Also, make sure you stop on over to our friends over at Universal Audio's website. Uh, that's uaudio.com. There's some great videos over there from our friends Jakir King and Vance Powell you should check out, as well as many others. So uh, check that out at uaudio.com. Well, that's it. I think it's time to... Get down to it here. Let's chat with our friend, Matt Allison, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So welcome to the podcast, and thanks for being on. Oh, I'm very happy to be on. You're in Chicago. That is correct, yes. I just got home for the holidays from Michigan, and uh, Aha. yeah, it was like 14 degree days, one degree nights. Yeah, it's one degree right now with a wind chill of 18 below zero. Oh my God. And that's in the middle of the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, if possible, I'm. Uh, I do a lot of work from home as well, and I think today will be a day that I work here from home. You know, don't want to go outside today at all. I can't imagine why. So, are you from Chicago? Uh, I am from uh, Rockford, Illinois, originally, which is about ninety miles west. Also, um, home of Cheap Trick. Ah, you and Brad Wood are from the same same place. Yep, Brad uh, went to a different high school than I did, but uh, Brad is also a Rockford native and he's he was smart he moved to la he got he got to the warm weather i didn't i didn't move far enough away yeah because I, I i interviewed him at aes or nam one year uh -huh. and that was that came out 
that he was from Rockford, and we talked about Cheap Trick and the influence of Cheap Trick on Rockford. It's and it's a very strong influence. Brad's band. Uh, Brad had a band in high school, and they played my high school prom. Wow. Yeah, he was a, he was a uh, saxophone player. He played. Uh, he's a multi instrumentalist. Very talented. Very talented dude, and a swell swell person as well. Oh uh, yeah, he's a total sweetheart. Real great person. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so did you did you just cross running parallel lives, or did you crisscross it all? Um, a little bit in those early days, back in the, uh, back in the early nineties, when I had my first, uh, my first uh, studio gig in Chicago, Brad had his studio in full music and his studio was only probably about half a mile away, but I had just moved to Chicago. So I wasn't quite in the, uh, the scene that Idful was at the time, which was uh, right when Liz Fair was starting to, to blow up for him and everything. Yeah. Um, so we actually didn't see much of each other. And then he, uh, he got very busy after, after Liz Fair got popular. And I'm not sure when he moved to, to L.A., but I, I don't think it was. I don't know if he, if he even made it through the rest of the 90s in Chicago. The winters possibly got to him as well. Yeah, that could be a breaking point for anybody, I can imagine. Absolutely. Well, so back to you. You, you started Atlas in 96. Yes, that's correct. Yep. But what I'm curious about is the time leading up to Atlas. What were there any other studio projects? You know, uh, did you build a studio? Yeah, I worked. Um, I initially worked. I, I lived in Champaign, Illinois, for a long time. Odd. Ah, so you know Mark Rubel? I sure do. I sure do know Mark. Also a s- sweetheart as well. Yeah, I've known Mark since boy, it would have been that like the '80s. Yeah. And because okay. uh, my my mom and my stepdad worked for the University of Illinois, which is in Champaign, Illinois. And uh, I, so I lived in, I lived in Champaign for quite a while in the, in the eighties, first half of the eighties, actually for the majority of the eighties, truthfully. And I did live sound there. And then uh, at some of the clubs there, when I got out of high school and I didn't really go to school for very long because I knew audio and engineering was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So um, I started doing live sound. This was in 1988, 89. Got to do live sound for a lot of very cool bands at the venue I worked at, like when they were very small indie bands, like the Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana came through once, the Afghan Wigs, all those wow. sub pop bands from, from the sub pop label in the late 80s. Uh, and also a band called Material Issue, which was a Chicago band. And I mm-hmm. became good friends with them and uh, moved to Chicago and became their sound man in 1990 and also got a job at. Uh, a couple of the uh, venues here in Chicago. The main guy in Material Issue got me that got me those gigs. So I was a sound man for a while, but working in the studio is what I always wanted to do. And within about a year, I got a job at a studio down in Wicker Park neighborhood called Windy City Recorders, I believe was the name of it. And I worked there for about <clears throat> about four or five years until that place stopped, and I just it was going out of business. And I was like, well, now's the time for me to open my own studio. Opening a studio is quite an adventure on yeah. so many different levels. Going into it, what was the game plan or was there a game plan? I had a game plan in the sense that um, I had some clients from the previous studio gig, like a decent amount. People like I'd been there enough at the previous gig that I'd, that I'd had a pretty good, pretty good clientele. I also had a side gig at the time working in a bar in the neighborhood where I was putting the studio, which was fun. The plan when I started the studio was simply to find someplace with extremely low rent so that my overhead, <laughs> just generally keep my overhead very, very low. You know, that, that was the, the most important thing so that I could have a chance of 
getting everything started and off the ground and get some uh, wind at my back. So I, I started out with a couple ADATs, uh, the old black-faced ADATs, a Soundtracks Topaz board. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Couple, yeah. A pair of uh, Tenoys, the small ones, six and a half size, six and a half woofers on those. You know, the pretty bare minimum of, of microphones and recorded like neighborhood bands, recorded bands very, very cheaply. Very like since the overhead was so low, it was actually easy to attract some bands. I could keep the prices low, so it was easy to attract to attract bands to come in and record. So I was able to actually keep the place at least, you know, music flowing through there. A lot of musicians going going and getting in and out of there. Okay. Were there other studios in or out of Chicago that influenced how you were going to structure this in terms of what you were going to charge or how you were going to run the studio? Not really, you know, because I think I think because I had sort of gotten my because at the previous studio that I worked at, I was for all intents and purposes, I was the only engineer, and uh, and I was able to sort of run it and get an idea of what you know rates should be, what bands can afford, what demographic. Music-wise, I was sort of smart to hang out with and, and work within, you know. And that was about it. You know, Chicago's a big music city. There's there's lots of studios, but there's also, like, a ton of musicians. I mean, it is a huge music city. So there's a sort of never-ending amount of music going on at all times. I, let's go deeper into that for a second. I, I, from your perspective, why do you think that is? Why is Chicago continue to be a heavy music town. Believe it or not, I believe the weather actually has something to do with it. For example, because the winters are so nasty in the summertime, once it gets warm out and summer kind of officially starts that 12 to 14 week period where it's really nice outside in the city, there's a, a music festival, like either a street festival or some sort of official music festival every single weekend in the city of Chicago. Because when it gets warm here, people sort of, celebrate they get they're like all right it's beautiful outside and we're gonna we're gonna go out and just you know enjoy this for all it's worth and i think music becomes part of that there's there's it's also the city's also quite a bit of a melting pot i think the as i'm sure you know the the influence of the blues is huge in this city more than you know any other city i would think in the northern part of the country and that is a big part of it that that is a huge industry i mean there's labels here that are about the blue, about blues music. There's entire numerous entire clubs devoted exclusively to blues music, and then also I think the it's a Chicago is a very working class city that is uh, sort of just uses music as a as an outlet for for making fun, you know, having fun, you know. Yeah. In the wintertime, there's not a lot to do, you know. If and if you can make music in your house, or if you can go to a club where it's nice and warm watch some music people do it it is very very strong though i, I agree with you I, I can't necessarily explain exactly why it is i really can't i other than to say that i'm very glad that it, that it does exist i know that in terms of michigan cost of living is quite reasonable yes so has the cost of living even though for chicago has that changed over the years because obviously san francisco and new york have been pummeled with new growth and of course, with new growth comes intense real estate market. So Chicago, what's going on there, to the best of your knowledge? There have been parts of Chicago that have been that have been hit with higher real estate, but nothing, you know, on the order of what uh, 
New York and, and San Francisco have had. I mean, I've had musician friends in San Francisco that have had to move to Oakland or whatever, you know, move, just had to leave, basically. A lot of people have been priced out of there. In Chicago, there are still enough neighborhoods that have been yet to, it's such a huge city. There's still enough neighborhoods that have been, that, that have not been, uh, some may call it gentrified, but it's usually the artists that move into neighborhoods before they've been gentrified first. Mm-hmm. There's still enough of those neighborhoods that if, if, if a particular neighborhood gets too popular and the real estate tycoons have moved in and make it too pricey, the artist segment musicians simply move to the neighborhood next to it, you know, and you start, yeah. start there. You know what I mean? That it's, you can actually trace, you can look at the, the pattern of the neighborhoods, how it's worked in the city. There's with, started with Lincoln park and then it went to Wicker park, you know, then Logan square and Bucktown, you know, it's the way that there's been a natural like order of the way that people have moved in. Humboldt Park happened. Uh, they just moved to a new neighborhood, basically, is how it works. Interesting. Yeah. I- I'm sure if you're a developer, you probably say, well, let's just watch where the artists go. They have to do that. I'm positive they do. They're, they're the, the artists of the canary and the coal, coal mine for the real estate folks. If When the artists are moving, starting to group together in a neighborhood, like Pilsen is, is a neighborhood right now that they're all grouping into, that's when the... You know, that's when and Avondale, like the, these new neighborhoods, so those are the ones that the real estate guys are going in there, starting to buy large swaths of land and buildings that they can convert into lofts someday, you know. Which, of course, that, you know, directly affects those who rent studios. So is, do you continue to rent Atlas? Yeah, we do. Now, we lucked out in the sense that uh, the, the owner of the building where Atlas is, is a musician-friendly person, music-friendly person. The The neighborhood that we were in is a neighborhood called Lakeview, which is not too far from Wrigley Field, pretty close to Lake Michigan. And it is, generally speaking, a fairly, I, I don't want to call it like really expensive neighborhood, but it's not cheap. We're in the back of a, a uh, the back of a building on an alley. So it's kind of what I think used to be kind of like a taxi garage sort of situation. And the, and the landlord is, I've explained to him the, the business dynamics of the music industry as it is now. And told him, basically, my last last pitch I made to him a year or so ago, as far as like keeping our rent relatively low, was that this was the most that the studio could probably afford to pay and stay open. And I also told him that I thought it was important that the neighborhood and I, I told him I thought really thought it was important that this that the studio stayed open. I thought it was good to have it in the neighborhood. I thought it was good. It, you know, we don't make a, obviously a ton of money running a recording studio. You don't really make a ton of money. But I told him that I thought it was really great that this existed in that it existed in our neighborhood. That it was there for people that visited Chicago that wanted to record there to be able to do it in Lakeview. As I say, he's very artist friendly person. You know, I think it would probably cost him a fortune to renovate it to something else, and so he's just been happy to just let us stay there. We've been there for yeah, let's see, going on thirteen years now. So, and the rents essentially stayed the same. Yeah, but I'm sure it can be a very um, tempting situation for any building owner when the developers start coming in and flashing big wads of cash. I'm sure that if you're an artist-friendly person, that's when your soul starts to <laughs> get split. I, I think what saved us is that this neighbor, the neighbor that we're in, actually gentrified long ago once the chicago cubs started becoming a good baseball team again Mm -hmm. back in the late 80s is when is when the lakeview neighborhood went from being sort of a cheap artist area into like 
and a kind of an expense, not expensive, but like a, a, a more family friendly, tourist friendly type area. So the, the, the sort of expansion that, that hits neighborhoods and gentrifies them has already happened. You know, there's like, it's pretty much rock solid. There's no explosion still to happen in our neighborhood, mm-hmm. which benefits us. So, so unless he decides to sell the building, which he might do someday, he owns numerous buildings. There shouldn't be any problem with us staying there because he can't really, he would have to put a lot of money into turning it into something else. Because like I say, it's in the back of a building. So there's no windows in the, in the studio. And it's on an alley. It doesn't have true street frontage. So it's a very sort of peculiar, uh, peculiar space that happens to be very well suited for a studio, but may not, might not be so well suited for anything else. The construction of Atlas in 96, have you made any changes since then? Well, the first one that we had, this is the, the space that we're in right now is the third space that we've had. Oh. Atlas has had. Yeah, this is the third space. We were in a space that I built from scratch in a, on the second floor of a very cheap place in the Andersonville neighborhood in 96. And we were there from 96 to, it wasn't that long. It was only about two or three years. Then we moved about uh, three blocks away to another space, a uh, storefront type space in Andersonville that had about, about 800 square feet. It wasn't very big at all. And we were there for six years at least. And then we've been in this current space, which is a completely tricked out space that was actually mostly already built, about 2,000 square feet. Uh, we've been here since March, or yeah, March of uh, 05, so almost 13 years. I'm sure you've learned a thing or two about signing leases and all of the intricacies of that. Or is, is there any part of that process that you could share that others would benefit from? Well, I had to renegotiate mine. We signed a 10-year lease initially in that March of 05. And uh, in the lease, it included uh, provisions for rent increases. And they weren't, you know, they weren't horrible amounts. And I, and I actually went along with them for the first few years. And I think it was in 08, though, once, uh, when the economy took a crap. I remember going to, uh, going to landlord and going, you know, look, the, this, the economic reality of things at the moment is this, and that is that probably can't take on any more rent increases and truthfully could you use a rent reduction so i think he reduced my rent for a couple of years brought it back up for a year and uh we've basically arrived at a number that is is really what the studio can use to function on because as you know studio rates haven't exactly kept pace with inflation uh they've remained pretty stagnant if not even you know shrunk so yeah, I'd be very careful about when you sign a lease, make sure that you're being realistic about what the rent will be if you have any sort of rent increases right into the lease. So be careful with those. Don't just look at those percentages and go, okay, cool. Actually figure out yeah. what those percentages are and figure out how that will jive against your projected income. Absolutely. Very important, definitely. Interesting, yeah. huh? It's a tough business, you know? It really is. As I know you know, as I know you're aware. But yeah, running a recording studio is, is more a labor of love than, than a method of becoming wealthy, obviously. You know, it's, not, it's just not a real money-making proposition. Those that I've spoken with who own their buildings, when you own your studio or when you own the building, the end game is becomes a real estate game because yeah. you can ultimately sell the building and potentially take that money in your old age and retire on that, depending on the area you're in. But if you're in a rental situation, 
it is a worry every 5, 10, 15 years what your rent increases are going to be and whether developers are going to come in and tempt your landlord to sell off the building. And I, you know, I've been in two situations uh, in my time where the building ultimately, you know, got snatched and is no longer a studio. Yeah, that was, that's got to stink. Well, so let's talk about the positive end of it. In your time of running Atlas, my last interview was with Eddie Kramer, and we talked about how Jimi Hendrix really stuck with Eddie. Mm-hmm. And I... And I know that Wikipedia is not the end-all, be-all source of information, but uh, I do notice something in your discography, uh, the Lawrence Arms and Alkaline Trio, you've made a few records with them, and that seems to be a similar kind of bond. Um, Absolutely, yeah, for sure. What is it about the way you work that you think keeps those two bands working with you? Those, you know, those two bands are also responsible for a lot of other business that has come into the studio, and, and that's because of the genre that they, they they are, which is sort of the Chicago punk rock genre. As far as what keeps those bands uh, and and I working together, I mean, they've made records with other with other folks, but I have made a lot of records with them, unquestionably, no doubt. I think it's uh, well, we get along as people very well. We're all friends. That's probably a number one thing. Mm-hmm. Myself personally, I'm truthfully much more of a pop person in the sense of like my favorite bands are bands when I was younger. My favorite bands were bands like uh, the the Beatles and the Beach Boys and Big Star uh, power pop bands. I'm very much a pop person. Uh, however, I do have a tremendous love for punk rock as well, and I know that those two styles might seem like they aren't connected in any way, and they often aren't but um because i do actually love punk rock a ton i think at times i was able to bring um a, something of a pop sensibility every now and then to to those kind of to those kinds of records and at least in terms of the aesthetics that i liked so it perhaps that's what perhaps that played a role in the popularity of some of those records in some small part the main reason those records are are popular is because the musicians themselves are so talented, write great songs, and um, are very uh, sincere in their in their uh, performances and and whatnot. So, and I, and I generally just try to accommodate that. I try to help that get through as honestly as possible. Matt Allison here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause here and talk about our friends from Audio Technica for a sec. Just, uh, you know, if you haven't heard it enough from me, I know I talk about it quite a bit, but I continue to use my ATHM40X headphones to this day and love them very, very much. They're under 100 bucks. They sound great. Don't have overhyped bass. Uh, they are one of my favorite pairs of headphones to listen to. Very comfortable, uh, very uh, pleasing to listen to, and very revealing. So uh, I'm going to put a link to uh, buy them. They're under 100 bucks, like I said. Uh, this is going to be an Amazon link, and this is going to be one of those uh, affiliate links. So if you do buy them, uh, Working Class Audio does see a little bit of uh, money from that, which, of course, helps contribute to costs that we incur here. So, uh, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. If you're interested, grab, grab yourself a pair. And, um, yeah, ATHM40X is damn good headphones. All right. Well, that's it. Let's get back to it with our friend Matt Allison here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
What is it you're really good at when it comes to this genre of, of in particular, punk rock? Pretty good at drums, I think. Punk rock is an interesting thing to record when it comes to drums because the tempos are generally very fast, which can lead to some interesting clashing of frequencies and dynamics within the drum set when they're being played very quickly. Punk rock is also very heavy on the cymbals, extremely heavy on the cymbals. Figuring out how to make all that stuff work together is quite a puzzle to piece together. And then also the guitar aspect of things. I started out as a guitar player when I was younger, so I have a pretty good grip on on getting guitar sounds, at least guitar sounds that I like. But I think it's just being able to make those things um, work together in a relatively decent manner without sounding... Because the tricky thing is with punk rock is you, if you make it sound too slick, then it sort of loses its uh, uh, its street cred, if you will. It, it, the kids that listen to punk rock and enjoy it like it because for the precise reason that it does not sound like the standard fare they would get on the radio, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a walking a balance between raw, very raw, because it has to be raw, but still not sounding horrible, so, so things are... You know, so you can't hear what's going on, or sucks to listen to it. You know what I mean? It's sort of like it's sort of like balancing those two things. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of a tricky thing to read. Are there aesthetic choices you make to make sure that you safeguard where the band is at in their career, or are there things that you lean on to say to you know maybe the you know maybe it is a raw band, but maybe they're on the verge of becoming a little bit bigger. So yeah. You can kind of push the 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 pop punk thing or those aesthetics that come with that a little more. Absolutely, I th- that's definitely something that happens. It's always up to the band where you think the band is at in their career. You know, bands generally speaking want to become as big as possible, but when they've once they've gotten their indie cred, as it were, uh, and they want to become a, a bigger band, they want to do that without losing their original fan base, and so that the things that usually get done are uh, are some of the things that we talked about with drums and with the drums and um, and the guitars uh, sometimes I wouldn't I don't want to call it softening but playing around with different tones on the guitars uh, so that there's more variety in the guitar tones is uh, something that I think helps those bands on the drum end of things you start to get a little bit pickier about the patterns the drummers doing you'll have him uh, drop what you know might be considered superfluous parts in a drum thing to play things straighter just to get the point across uh, have him close his hi-hat more big thing yeah. about punk rock is a crazy open wide, wide open hi-hat and uh, you start working with things like that like, it, like how far open the hi-hat is how much the hi-hat is used these things like uh, the hi-hat and the cymbals once again those are major occupiers of uh real estate in the frequency spectrum when it comes to, uh, to to things. So you start to sort of like judge that out a little bit more. I think it was your uh, fellow Chicago peer, Steve Albini, that said, I think the hi-hat is the instrument of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the Beatles, I think that, you know, isn't it, I, I remember hearing that the Beatles essentially took the, took the, the hi-hat away from Ringo at one point. Um, and you can, <laughs> You can hear the if you listen to those Beatles records, you can tell that there's there obviously was an ongoing war with the hi hat because it went from um, their early records in '64, you know, something like Hard Day's Night, where he's just wailing away on an open hi hat throughout the pretty much the entire song almost, and then you get up to four years later by the White Album, and like he's lucky if he gets one closed hi hat hit on some of those songs. 
So they, uh, they, they, if you, there's a gradual reduction in his use of hi-hat throughout that four-year period between when they started and when the White Album came out. And it's interesting that you you started out with two black-faced eight-ats at Atlas. Um, yeah, they were horrible sounding. They're not the greatest thing on the planet. Uh, although I will say that it, it does help, the digital aspect helped the drums, uh, you know, what you got in, what you put in came out. To, to a certain to a certain degree in terms of clarity and punch, obviously you went from blackface adats to something else. What was the the evolution from that? Yeah, we went from blackface adats to the Elisis HD twenty four. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it was it, what's interesting was that it was an immediate there was an immediate audible difference, like immediate converter converter change. Yeah, uh, yes, because and the bit depth, I'm guessing as well for something. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, but it, it had to have been the converters for sure because i remember having to transfer current projects that were being done on the blackface adats over to the hd24 and all of a sudden as i was playing it back on the hd24 i was hearing things that i couldn't that i wasn't hearing on the blackface adats for and i'll, I'll never forget this like soling up a floor tom track and all of a sudden i was able to hear the room on this floor tom track whereas before i didn't feel like i could hear the room at all like it was getting lost in the low level detail getting lost and being truncated somewhere down on the bottom end of things or the lower end of the spectrum or whatever uh so yeah i was able to hear able to hear things better once we moved up to that machine that's interesting i i would have assumed that you would have gone to an analog machine i don't know why well i did i had uh we just shortly after getting the hd24 we had a one inch it was an ms16 task ms16 and i cut did some stuff, some pretty, some pretty cool stuff on that. I did um, one of the Lawrence Arms albums was done on that machine, uh, an album called The Greatest Story Ever Told, which is a super cool record, really, really cool record. And then we went, uh, and then a few years later, I think it was 04, so it would have been the next year, 04, 05, I got a, a, a Sony APR24, is that what it was? It was a two-inch machine. That Sony machine that uh, I guess Sony bought MCI at some point, and then they continued to make two-inch machines. Oh yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, um, that machine was cool. Um, it had built-in time code lock, which was super helpful because the Lawrence Arms album I did after the one I just spoke of, the next one was called Old Calcutta, and we cut that on the two-inch machine as well as cutting a few things. Perhaps it was vocals. I'm not really sure on the on the HD24. So we could edit easier, uh, and then was able to sync them up really easily. At what point did you cross over into using a DAW like Pro Tools? That happened in um, 2008. I had still I still had the two inch machine and was really enjoying using it. I got hired to do a record for a band called Less Than Jake, who are a ska type mm-hmm. band from Gainesville, Florida, and they had been on a major label, had a couple different major labels, if I remember correctly, uh, had also made some indie records. They've been a band for quite a long time. And their working method essentially required the use of Pro Tools. So I jumped in, bought an HD rig, and uh, fortunately, they're the bass player in that band, uh, Roger, is a brilliant engineer and producer himself who can play just about any instrument you throw at him and can and he's just a brilliant musician. You should interview him sometime. He's he's pretty amazing. Uh, he taught me Pro Tools as so, so. I mean, I knew Pro Tools because I used it for editing on my laptop, like the the, the LE version. But as far as like the recording a full blown band 
with it. Roger helped me during the recording of that album. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of trial by fire, but I, I caught on to it pretty quick. And then eventually did, did you just go full into, into pro tools and stop using the other formats? Yeah. Because, you know, as time went on there, what I was realizing is that the, the, that the people, the things that people expected you to do when it came to recording and mixing were things that essentially had to be done with pro tools involving, you know, the click track and editing and then the recall of mixes and that that sort of has dictated the workflow in many ways, the, which is fine by me. I'm, I mix in the box now. I'm totally happy with that. I'm perfectly happy with that. So, well, so let's uh, fast forward a little bit now after so many years of, of running Atlas and, you know, interns now essentially running the studio that, you know, having mm-hmm. gone up through the ranks and I'm curious about a number of things. Number one, I'm curious what you've learned financially over the years, how to survive per, you know, just individually, what are some of the lessons well, I think it's 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 very tricky. I, I'm married and I have an eight-year-old daughter, which is entirely possible because of the fact that my wife has an excellent job. Thank God. Staying uh, afloat as a, a recording person is is very difficult. I think you have to be willing to wear a lot of different hats. You know, a diversification, if you will, is really the key. I think you've got to be able to be willing to record just about anything. Uh, you probably have to be willing sometimes to have a side job. I think a lot of guys have side jobs and there's nothing wrong with that because it's just simply not a, a financially um, you know, good place to be in terms of, of, of security. The, the recording studio is not a very secure job if you want financial security, is what I'm, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's very tricky. So yeah, I think my advice is to be ready to be be ready to do other things. Be ready to have other jobs if you want to continue to do recording because it it's very, very difficult, I think, to make a living doing just that. I mean, I, I imagine some of the ad, the jingle guys, the guys that do advertising, they're probably doing fine. Um, now I don't know how much time that leaves them to do music. I love music, so I'd like to continue to do that. That's And that's what I feel like I'm best at. Have you um, diversified over the years? In the sense that uh, I do a lot more mixing now. Um, which is fine by me, um, which allows me to, I have a, I have a pretty, a real nice studio setup, uh, mixing room set up in my home. So I'm able to work from home a lot, quite a bit. And that immediately lowers my overhead. If I think the, I think the other guys that work at Atlas do quite a bit of mixing from their own little home studios as well. Being able to mix from home saves on the budget for the, for the band, um, allows the studio to be booked as a tracking room rather than as a mixing room which I think is where it's real. I think the real, actually the real advantage of our studio is as a tracking room because we have a, a nice live room. So that's, that's become a necessary thing. Taking outside mixing projects, I do a lot of those, which I, I'm, I love to do, happy to do that. And how do you charge for those? Do you charge by the, by the song, the day, the hour? Yeah, I charge okay. by the song, yeah. Uh, I ch- personally, I charge 150 a song and uh, I get... People send me stuff from 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 all over, uh, which is one of the great things about the internet. I've been able to do. You know, I've done projects from Australia and Italy, um, Spain, and all sorts of different kinds of music. I did a I mixed a uh, surf band from Las Vegas a couple months ago. All sorts of different kind of music I can mix, so that I enjoy that. How are how are people finding you to do that? I think they're finding me either well, generally probably from word of mouth or the studio's website. I'm pretty sure it has some 
as contact info for me on there, if I remember right. And how do you find the language barriers, if or if there are any, uh, from people from other countries that where English may not be their their first language? It hasn't been too bad so far. It's pretty cool in the sense that, like, for the folks from Italy and Spain, they it's amazing how good their English can be. I mean, obviously, far better than my Spanish, or Italian, <laughs> which is not a, which is not existent. Yeah. It, 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 one of the amazing things about so many other countries around the world is the the effort they've made to learn our language there to be thoroughly congratulated for that. In my opinion, I think that's awesome that they've made the effort to communicate with us. We should certainly try to do the same for them. So that's been really that's been really nice. That's interesting, and uh, I'll be honest with you, 150 is quite affordable. Um, where that's what I'm told. Where do you yeah. draw the line on? revisions and stuff like that i haven't had any problems with revisions too much you know um i haven't had any i haven't had any real issues with that um the uh generally speaking um the bands are usually more like if they when the band has ever been sort of worried about something it's usually been about their own performance and uh they'll sometimes occasionally they'll be like you know hang tight we're gonna try to fix this on our end because they'll be, they'll just sometimes be a lot of times people can get very picky about their vocals and they'll just, after they've lived with a vocal track for a while, they'll be, they'll feel like, Oh man, you know, I could, I bet I could sing that better or something like that. They'll, uh, they'll uh, ask me to hold off on, on mixing the song and recut a vocal. Not to go down a, a gear rabbit hole with you. No problem talking about gear. Happy to talk about it. Happy to talk about gear. We generally don't talk too much about gear on the show, but, uh, uh-huh. What is the setup that you have that you feel you're you're in the box setup at home where you're mixing a lot of this stuff? Uh, obviously, yeah. there's a level of confidence and there's a level of um, a, a good listening environment. What is it that you've done to your place to make sure that you can hear well and not spend too much time doing revisions and lots of second guessing on what you're doing? Uh, I think getting getting a pair of monitors that you trust, number one. Um, and you know, you should have, you should have at least a little bit of, you know, your room cannot be an echo chamber. You have to have a room that is good size. I have a really nice size room in my house here. That's actually probably bigger than the control room at Atlas. So I'm, I'm able to use the, uh, whatever, whatever that, uh, I know there's that magic ratio where they have how far back into the room, the speaker should be situated. I don't know if it's like 64% or something like that. If you look it up online, there's a magic ratio for that, but um, I have a modicum of uh, rock wool on my wall as far as uh, the sound absorption and diffusion. So the room is con- under control. That's very key. I think those are the two, by far, the two main things are to have uh, a good sounding room to work in and monitors that you trust. Like I use, I use, I use NS10s. Believe it or not, I still use a pair of NS10s. Which generation of NS10? NS10M Studio or NS10? I have the originals, um, the oh. very first, the very first ones. Man, those are those are bright. They are very bright. Yeah, they are incredibly bright. And uh, the way that I've been, I sort of, I have a Yamaha amp that I use with them that sort of tames them a little bit. Yeah, it's sitting down underneath my console downstairs. I have I have the an Argosy system for the just so I can still feel like I'm at a console, yeah. which I still enjoy just leaning down and, and listening. Okay. Um, but I mix on NS10s and I also mix on some small, very small Apple uh, computer monitor speakers for the real world sort of uh, 
what do you call it, the real world effect of people listening on kind of crappy systems. Moving on from the gear thing, obviously the world of recording is full of ups and downs over the years. Uh, the longer you stay in it, the more you, the more ups and downs you get. Well, how have you dealt with disappointments over the years? Uh, I deal with I deal with them much better than I used to. <laughs> uh, that is absolutely a part of the business. There's no doubt about it. I think when I was younger, I used to take it, used to take any sort of uh, slight very personally, and uh, I've learned that you can't do that. I think you have to simply take every negative experience and use it as a learning experience. Uh, try to learn from it. Don't get too offended by it. Just keep pushing forward and then trying to improve what you do, improve your craft. Yeah. Um, that's part of the, one of the things that's so cool about this, about what we do, I think is the constantly learning new things makes it very exciting. It's, it's, it's always fun to learn something new. There's um, getting better at what you do is very exciting, you know, very fulfilling, self-fulfilling. It's, it's, that's, that's my, my yeah. So my advice is to not, not to get too bummed out when, when things might not go your way. Just take everything as useful criticism and just try to do better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and probably not get territorial with bands that decide they're going to go work with other people. Yeah. That's part of the biz. You know, unfortunately, that is part of the biz. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, there, there's the potential for so many disappointments, yet at the same time, there's the potential for so much uh, uh, celebration and so much enjoyment uh, along the way too, not to, not to be a downer here, but. Uh, oh, I agree. That's very true. You know, there's, and to think about it, you know, if, if, if you're working with a band you love and you make some great records with them and they go and they make a record with someone else, that's, that's bound to happen because they want to make sure that they're, they're trying new things as well. Mm -hmm. And remember that they, uh, the records you make with them very likely will lead to business from somebody else down the line who liked the records that you made with them. You know, it all, it all will come back and, and help you out in the end. What's your path here in the next five to 10 years? Do you see, I mean, at some point you're probably going to not be running a studio. Would you imagine in the future? Like yeah. I mean, for the, for, for the most part, you know, uh, Dan and Justin run the Atlas now as far as far as I'm concerned. And I think they do all the booking and they take care of everything. I had, I gave that responsibility to them last year. So I do much more mixing now. I would say at the moment, 80 to 90% of the work I do is mixing. And that's because I'd like to be able to uh, spend time with my daughter, who's who's eight years old. And um, so right now I don't do a ton of producing. I'm, I'm in a period of my life where right now I'm not recording a lot of albums. I'm only doing maybe one or two a year and everything else is mixing work. Um, when she gets to be a little bit older and she's more interested in the things that young people are interested in rather than hanging out with their parents, then which won't be that long now, then I'll be returning to doing more record production again. We sound like we're in a similar boat. I, I have two boys, nine and 11. And, uh, there you go. And I, and I seem to be doing mostly mixing and mastering work and uh, less tracking these days. I think I've only got one tracking day on the books right now for 2018, which is unusual and I, i'm okay with that because i do enjoy i mean i thoroughly enjoy being uh, being a dad so um that's that that works out okay for me and I, i've actually found working from home from my home studio the work that i do now for whatever reason is the mixing i'm doing now um i'm happier with the stuff i do now than i've ever been i think i've finally really comfortable with mixing in the box after doing it for a couple of years so i'm super positive and look about the future and look forward to uh to all the stuff I'll be working on in the future. That sounds good. And, and final question, who uh, inspires you um, from an engineering perspective 
you say you mix in the box. Do you follow any other mixing in the box uh, people, uh, people that mix in the box that anything like that? Or Andrew Sheps, of course, would be a major. He's done. Uh, he's such a cool guy. And seeing how he might have been, I think my when when I really decided it was like I know that this can work as far as the in the box aspect of things. I think it was him because I saw the kind of gear that he was used to working on, and he made the commitment to working in the box and made it work fantastic. He did a fantastic job making that work for him. And that's someone who once, like I say, once I saw him do it, I was like, I can do that as well. Yeah, very cool. Well, Matt, thanks for thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. It's great to meet you, and uh, I look forward to the possibility of meeting you in person in the future. But uh, it's great to have you on, and thanks for thanks for answering my questions. Awesome, thanks so much, Matt. Okay, we'll see you. Bye bye. Matt Allison here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really great to chat with Matt and hear about the world of recording in Chicago once again. We've had a few uh, folks from Chicago on, but it's good to have another. That's it, my friends. It's time to go. So we got to thank everybody. And we always like to start with thanking Mr. Cliff Truesdale. There he is. Yep. And we thank Chuck Smith and Mr. Cole Williams. We want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Lawton Audio, Universal Audio, Audio Technica. And hey, thank you. Happy New Year to you. Let's make it a good year. Thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.